Well, I'm excited to join you this morning as we begin a, a focus here coming up on who's your one. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, it all begins with one. It all begins with one. It really does. There's that critical juncture between nothing and something, and that critical juncture is one. And that's where we're going to begin. That's where we want to begin uh, this morning. But before we get started, let's pray together. Father, I ask for, we ask God for supernatural grace during this hallowed time. Lord, the spirit is willing, God, but the flesh is weak. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do through us, God, what we cannot do in and of ourselves. Empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let us be like the Apostle Paul who said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And by your power and by your strength, God, I pray that you would sanctify us, that you would purify us, that you would fill us with your spirit, with passion and zeal and fervor for your kingdom, God, and for your glory. And that, Lord, that you would use us to reach one for you, God. That's our ask this year. One person this year for Jesus Christ, for their eternal joy, and for your eternal glory. We believe it, God. We believe that you can do it. You saved us, God. If you save me, you can save anybody, Lord. Use us, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and as you turn there, uh, just want to comment on this, uh, something we all understand, and that is that we have, uh, we all have certain pictures or associations in our mind when it comes to certain ideas or certain uh, vocations or certain kinds of people, maybe. Um, we just kind of have associ- associations with our minds and mental images of certain kinds of things. For example, when I say the word teacher, a certain image pops into your head. Maybe it looks like that. Now, like, now I did mechanical engineering, and I don't even think I did math like that, okay? Uh, did a little bit. But some of you, on the other hand, have actually been teachers, and when you think of teachers, you think of something a little more like that. Like, oh my goodness. Notice in the first picture, the teacher was happy, and she had calculus on the board, and in this picture, she's having a hard time, and she has ABCs on the board, so I'll let you decide what that means, okay? Uh, Another thing that we associate, uh, another thing we can talk about is is camping. Now, when I was a kid, I was a Boy Scout, and... When I think of camping, this is what I think of. This, this is camping. Hey, folks, I'm going camping. But camping over the years has changed. It now looks something kind of like this. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go rough it, y'all, in the wilderness and go camping. Okay, and, that, that's, and th- y'all say, I can get into that kind of camping. But um, we have associations with things. Things are, things are changing. Okay, what about Baptists? If I said Baptist, what would you associate with Baptist? That's a Baptist. <laughs> They, that's what that's a Baptist. When you see that, you say that I don't, you know. Even if they're not a Baptist, they're Baptist. They just don't know it, okay? Because that that's what a Baptist looks like. All right. Now next, okay. So, now 
Some of you are health conscious, and then some people are, are super health conscious, and some people are so health conscious that they, they self-identify as vegan. Now, I don't know why anyone would, would want to do that, but, but some people do, and that's fine. If you're a vegan, that's fine. But see, I only know one kind of vegan personally, and this is, this is my kind of vegan right here. This is my favorite kind of vegan, and they're of the most delicious variety. And... And this is the kind of vegan I love the best because when we eat these kind of vegans, we help other vegans because they're eating all the vegans' food. So we're helping them out by, take it, by, by helping preserve their food. Okay? So the next question I want to ask is this. In our mind, our mental association, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? What's your association there? What's your mental picture? What do you see? How do you know? When you look at Something when you look at someone, when you look in the mirror, what does a Christian look like to you? Many today, and perhaps increasingly so, um, in our in our increasingly secular culture, when they hear the word Christian, they have uh, very uh, negative ideas. Uh, and in many cases today, when you if someone says, you know, well, who's a Christian? And for many people, the only identifying mark of a Christian is if is if just if they self-identify as a Christian, if someone just says, I'm a Christian, that makes them a Christian, somehow or another. But, you may be interested to know, if you remember, that the first Christians, the first Christians actually did not call themselves Christians. It was other people who saw the way that they were living their life, and they, from the outside looking in, they were called Christians. That's interesting. Now, isn't it? Acts 11, verse 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You see that? They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians. And we don't know for sure, but it could have even been a, uh, it could have even had a derogatory kind of connotation. These people calling them uh, Christians. Now, 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 can you imagine that? How, how is it that these onlooking people would see this group of the followers of Jesus Christ, and, and all of a sudden they would just say, well, look at those Christians over there. The answer, of course, has to be this, that their life as people in their life as a community, in the way that they loved and treated and took care and spoke about and, and served one another, was so radically centered around the person and the message of Jesus Christ that even disinterested onlookers will say, I don't know what the deal with those Christian Christ-obsessed people are, but that's who they are. That even those outside looking in will say something is weird about them because the only thing they seem to care about is Jesus Christ. Such that an outside onlooker would call them, perhaps even derogatorily, a Christian, a little Christ. You see, it's astounding that they did not call themselves Christians, but the onlooking world did. I think that's perhaps a lesson for us then about what it means to be a disciple because that's what they... In verse 26 there it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So they viewed themselves as disciples. But then they were, they were living in such a way that outsiders looking in called them Christians. So what does it mean to be a, a disciple? 
I think it must mean that our lives are so fixed, so centered, so focused on the person, the work, and the message of Jesus Christ. That people just know, they just know that that's the radical core, the center, the most important thing for us. Because if, because if, if he is the son of God who died for our sins, who saved us from eternal misery in hell, who gave us the sure hope of the resurrection from the dead, and who is one day coming back to fully redeem this world, how could our lives not be centered on him? And so the question is this, is that when the outside world, onlooking world, looks in at our lives, what do, they, what do they see as the radical center of our lives, the radical core of our lives? Would the outside looking in say something like, man, I don't know what the deal is with that person, but Jesus is the most important thing to them. I pray that that would be said of all of us and of our church. And so that brings us to the, the, the call of discipleship that Jesus places on all of our lives, to be a discipler, a Christian. And that brings us to our text this morning in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter, 18, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. <clears throat> While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The word of God. You may be seated. So, uh, before we get started here, I want to give a little background that's going to help understand this. And um, These insights come from uh, Pastor J.D. who was on the video earlier. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention um, at present. And uh, he says that, to understand what's going on here, he says that in typical Hebrew culture in that day, that Hebrew boys began learning the, the Torah, uh, that, that's the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, at age five. Okay, age five. And by age ten, the best students would continue in their studies, uh, while the remainder at that time would go and, you know, take on the family business. Okay, so the best students by age 10, would continue on while the rest would go and take over, the, you know, work for their, their father, if you will. And then he says that by age 17, what would happen is that the brightest and the sharpest students who wanted to make a career, if you will, of religious teaching, which was a, a, a coveted position and role in that time and that culture, at, at that time, what they would have to do is that they would have to go find a rabbi that they wanted to study over, under, somebody that they admired, somebody who they uh, uh, saw was making a difference and was truthful and, and, and wise in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures. And they'd have to find such a one, and they'd have to go and, and literally sit at their feet. Uh, sit at their feet would be a sign of their desire to study with the rabbi. 
And then the rabbi would have to, uh, would then, would begin to question them and to examine them to see, you know, if they had what it takes. And so the question would just, the the rabbi would, would strictly examine and question them to see if they were, if they, uh, would make a fitting disciple because they were really picky, of course, because uh, for, the, for the rabbis, they were looking not just for somebody to come learn from them, but they were looking for somebody who could actually take up their mantle, who could take up their mantle after the rabbi passed on and carry on their traditions and their teachings and their understandings of the scriptures. Okay? And so these disciples then would become... Uh, basically walking images of their rabbis, following them uh, wherever they went. And so this is a, this is a, so Jesus' uh, call here of his disciples, it is a little unusual as we'll talk about, but at the same time it wasn't something totally foreign to a Jewish understanding. And so that brings us to the first point from this passage this morning, and that is this. Number one, Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best... He chooses the willing. Uh, the disciples in this passage, and a large number of the disciples, were of what vocation? They were fishermen. If they were fishermen, and this historical background is correct, what does it mean by the fact that they were fishermen? It means that earlier on in the process, they didn't make the cut. They weren't sharp enough. They weren't smart enough. They didn't have all the right answers. They weren't wise enough according to the worldly classifications. They didn't, they didn't make the cut to go. They, they never had the, they didn't, it never even entered their mind to say, well, I'm going to go sit at so-and-so's feet in hopes of becoming his disciples. Because to them, that was a dream long gone. I'm just going to go and I'm going to catch some fish because that's what my family does. That's what I do. But you got to understand that these fishermen who didn't make the cut in one sense, they weren't in the top of their class. We could call them the B team. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to start his movement and change the world with the B team. That's what he did. Jesus Christ came and he chose not the most gifted, not the most skilled, not the most disciplined, not the greatest orators, not the bravest and the best. He chose the B team because God doesn't need our strength. God wants our weakness. God doesn't need our ability. He just needs our availability. Because God's, God's power is not limited by our weakness. And therefore, the weaker we are, the more God's power is set on display through us. And so, uh, worldly greatness oftentimes is a hindrance to God's work because we think we can do it in our own ability, but when we do things in our own ability, then we do only as much as our own ability can accomplish, which isn't much. But when we realize that apart from Him, we can do nothing and just cast ourselves at the mercy and at the feet of Jesus, then all of a sudden God begins to do what God begins to do with us which is a lot more than we could ever do with ourselves. Apart from him, we can do nothing, but with him, all things are possible. And as we get on our knees and beg his, for him to use his power through us, that even though we can't, he can, and he begins to do what only he can do. You know, so often, sometimes we, we think, 
we see some kind of famous person and we think, man, if God, if God would just save that person right there, man, God could really, he could really do it. He could really, man, that person, he's just, you know, he's popular, he's famous, he's gifted. Man, if God would save that person, he could really make a difference in the world. God doesn't need your fame or your abilities to make a difference in the world. He doesn't. In fact, 9 out of 10, I just made that up, but 9 out of 10 of the famous, important people in the world today are making eternal, making, excuse me, making zero eternal difference in the world. Zero. Many of the richest, wealthiest, most powerful people in the world today will enter eternity empty-handed and a nobody. And the people who will be the most famous in heaven are people you've never heard of. Because they served and they gave and they glorified God with all that they were. God doesn't need power or fame or giftedness or ability to make a difference in the world. He just needs faith. Belief that he is who he said he is and that he will do what he says he will do when we trust him. So the question for all of us is... What about us? Are we willing? Have we made ourselves available to God? Have we laid down our plans for ourselves and taken up God's plans for ourselves? Have we been willing to lay that blank check out on the table and say, God, whatever you want to write, whatever amount, whatever payable to you want to write in that, my life is yours. You cash me. You spend me where you want me. You use me how you want to use me. We can. Why? Because the power is in us? No, because the power is in God. We can't, but God can. God can use you. God can use me to make an eternal difference in the world so that we don't waste this life. So that we don't stand before him one day empty-handed before him. If we humble ourselves visibly, manifestly, cry out to God to use us and to equip us and to embolden us and to empower us to to be used by him to make a difference in the world, he will do it. He can't not do it because he's commanded us and what he commands us to do, he empowers us to do. And by the way, that's just not... That's just not spiritual language. That's an, that's an actual application point for this sermon. Here's one way that you could practically apply this sermon. Go home, get in the closet, close the door, get on your face before God and say, God, I want you to use my life. I don't want to waste my life. I want you to use it for your kingdom and for your glory to make an eternal difference in this world. And he will. Why? Because he's a gracious and he's a mighty God. It's him that does it and not us. That's why we can have confidence in it. Because it's God doing it through us. This this is how Paul viewed his life in Romans 15, 18. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. You see that? The Apostle Paul. My goodness. The most, the most effective, the most productive, the most fruitful Christian probably besides Jesus who ever lived. And he said, I didn't do anything. Christ did it through me. 
That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. How about that? Can God's grace toward us be in vain? He says, The grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God. You see that? The people who work the hardest for Christ is not because they're special. It's not because they're specially talented or have something. It's just it's just because it's only because they have God's grace working in them. And so, in other words, it's not if we want if we want if we want God to use us more then the, the only avenue is to just plead with God for more grace. Because it's all a gift of grace. Everything's a gift of grace. So number one here, Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Are we willing? Are we willing? Are you willing to be used by God? And number two, number two, he chose us, not we him. He chose us, not we him. So think about the context here. The disciple typically which would seek out the rabbi, and the rabbi would examine them, and upon proper examination... <clears throat> you know, if the rabbi saw that they had what it takes, if you will, that they were sharp and wise, then the rabbi would choose them. And, now you, and, and so now you have to think about it. Think about if you were a disciple in that case, and you go and you, you know, you're kind of laying yourself out there, you know, you're kind of putting it on the table, you're sitting at his feet and basically inviting him to examine you, and then he examines you and questions you, but then... He chooses you. Imagine how that feels. You're chosen. He picked you. You're in. You're a disciple. Think about the, think about the encouragement that you would think, man, you know, he, he, he picked me. He wants to, he, believe, he believes that I can carry on his, his traditions. I can carry on his teaching. I can carry on his life. He believes in me. Well, if it was so encouraging to be chosen by a rabbi, think about what it meant for the disciples that Jesus chose them. And of course, his was a little unique, wasn't it? Because the disciples, they didn't, they didn't come looking for Jesus. They had long given up hope of being a disciple of a rabbi. And yet here they are fishing, and here a rabbi comes looking for them says, hey, Peter, hey, Andrew, hey, James, hey, John, I choose you. You know, when you became a Christian, you might not have experienced it exactly like this, but in the spiritual reality of things, Jesus was looking you in the eye and says, I choose you. To do what? To be a disciple. To follow me. Why? Because you can, by the power of my spirit, you can carry on my teaching. You can carry on my tradition. You can be a walking image of me. You can walk in my dust, as it were, and carry on the good news that I've came to bring to the whole world for, for ages upon ages until the end comes. You can, because you did not choose me, but I came and I chose you to follow me, to glorify me. And that's what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's what it says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's what Jesus told his disciples 2,000 years ago. Did Jesus' words fall to the ground or did their fruit abide? 2,000 years later, across the continent, across the ocean, we worship Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, Peter and James and John and Andrew were chosen by Jesus Christ to carry the message. And when he ascended into heaven, they went out and they proclaimed it. And we are the fruit of their labors. Why? Because Jesus said that I chose you that your fruit may abide. And it did. And it will. And in the same manner, he has chosen us. And that means what? That our fruit will abide too. There, when history is wrapped up, when the sky splits open and where Christ descends, we don't know the impact that our one little life by God's grace and power can make because God is sovereign over the world. And he does, will it wills. He does what he wills. And if he chooses that our fruit should abide, guess what? Nothing can stop him. We have been chosen so that our fruit will abide. So take heart, church. He chose us for this task, not we him. He came looking for us, not we him. And if we'll open our mouths to speak of Christ and our wallets to give for Christ and our lives to live for Christ and our homes to serve for Christ, we will bear fruit and it will abide and nothing can stop it. Because he chose us, not we him. Number two. Next, number three. To follow him, it means to be a disciple. To follow him, we have to leave all. To follow him, we have to leave all. In verse 22, when he called them, it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then James and John, it says immediately they left their, the boat and their father and followed him. You see, the call of Christ on our lives, on all of our lives, on every single person in this room, and every single person in the world, the call of Christ in our lives is immediate. It is ultimate. And it is urgent. Imagine you were John and, or, or Peter and you were at the boat and Jesus walks up and he says, follow me. What are you going to do? What if you said, what if, what, if, what if Peter said, just give me a minute, Jesus. Just hold on a second. There's a few things I want to take care of. There's a few things over here that I haven't tried yet that I want to see what it's like before I follow you. How many people say that to Jesus today? <laughs> I've heard it. I've heard it. With my own two ears, I've heard it. Imagine looking Jesus in the face, Jesus in the face, and saying, not right now. Let me tell you something. 
to say maybe later to Jesus is to reject Jesus. The call of Christ on all of our lives is immediate and it's urgent. And oh, the vast multitudes who have heard the call to come to Christ, but fantasized about other fleeting things in the world, forgetting that the wages of sin is death and narrow is the way that leads to life. And that call that was placed on their lives by somebody sharing the gospel to them, that call to come to Christ will stand as a witness against them on the last day. Because they heard it and did not respond. To follow Jesus, we have to leave all. The disciples left their livelihoods. They left their family. Yes, following Jesus is costly. But the reward is infinitely, infinitely greater than the cost. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's so much in that statement. You should, we should memor, you should memorize this and think about it and dwell on it, what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. It's saying that to have the kingdom is going to cost you everything else. But the value of the kingdom is so great that if you get the kingdom, then everything else is like Nothing. Just to have it. In other words, the value of the kingdom is so great that even if it costs you everything to have the kingdom, in the end, you've lost nothing. But you've gained everything. Why? Because the kingdom is all that matters. Jesus Christ is all that matters. Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man? Nothing. 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 The story in the rich man and Lazarus. He had everything this world could afford him. And he died and was in torment and was begging for a drop of water to be placed on his tongue. What does it matter? What does all the world matter? It matters nothing compared to Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus, we have to leave all, and it's infinitely worth it. And for some, that means packing up, selling all, leaving all to go overseas and take the message of Christ to where he's not yet been named. That's what it really concretely means for a lot of people. And I pray that God would work and raise up more people, more missionaries, more people who hear and heed the call. He can do it. He is able From this church family, he could do it. Raise up missionaries to go and say, I want the light of the gospel of Christ, the glory of Christ to be made known in them and the idol-worshiping nations and the people who don't give praise and honor to God that he is due. And so I'm I'm going to tell them about Christ so that he may receive the praise that he's due from their mouths and their lips. He can do it. He will do it. Why? Because following Jesus is costly. But it's infinitely worth it. We have so much light here in America, so much access to the truth. And there are great people who have so little access to the truth. And the only reason we exist today is because people gave their lives so that we can have access to the truth. Do you know that? Do you know how much blood was shed to get the Bible translated into English? You should look it up. 
A lot of people died so that you could read the Bible in your own language. Why? Because they believed. They believed that the glory of God and the message of Christ was that important that it was worth giving their life for that other people might have. And other, for other people, it means other things. For some people, it, means, it may mean moving, from, moving or your family into a, a city to join a church plan and investing spiritually in our cities where there are a disproportionate amount of losses. This is, a, this is an important thing that uh, our, the convention and many churches in our convention are doing that I think is just is so great. There is a cities, a, cities, the reality is, is there's a lot more people in cities and not just that, but there's a lot more lost people in cities. And we small town folks, we say, we don't, I don't like the city. I don't ever want to live there. Well, that may be true. I lived in, I lived in Atlanta for a couple of years. Let me tell you something. It wasn't easy, but let me tell you something. If I was lost and dying and going to hell, I would want somebody who didn't like cities as much saying, you know what? I'm going to give up my right to not like cities, and I'm going to go to one to share, this lo- to share Jesus Christ with this lost person. And a lot of people are doing that, are our Meg's sister and their family, J.D. Greer's church, who was just on this video, they, they just planted a church in their, in their city where they live, Charlottesville, Virginia. Meg's sister, they just planted a church there. How did they plant the church? Like 10 families packed up and moved from Raleigh-Durham to Charlottesville to start a church. That's how they started it. Why? Because they want to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to those cities where people don't know him. Imagine revolving your whole life not around this or that, but around, I'm not going to work where I can make the most money. I'm going to work where I can be most effective for Jesus Christ. I'm going to live not where I can be the most comfortable. I'm going to live where I can be most effective for Jesus Christ. It is trading our earthly treasure for heavenly treasure. Sacrificing our luxuries and conveniences in order to give sacrificially and to work sacrificially for the cause of seeing others come to know him. Think about it, folks. What is 60, 70, 80, 90 years compared to eternity? Moses in Psalm 90 said, Lord, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Life is short, folks. Turn on the news. We all have an appointment with the divine. Our days are numbered. How are we going to use them? For him. To follow Jesus, we must live all. Number four. Number four, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's just two things quickly I want to draw out from here. There's both an active and a passive aspect to this verse right here. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Okay? There's the active aspect, which is clear. The active part that we play is we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. That's the call. We are to actively follow Jesus. But then there's also a glorious passive part of the statement the passive part is this we follow jesus but jesus says i will make you fishers of men you see that we follow jesus and jesus says i will make you fishers of men in other words jesus is the one who does the making into fishers of men you want to become a fisher of men here's what you do just follow jesus really closely run run really hard after Jesus. And guess what? He'll make you a fisher of men. You'll be one of those people whose Christ is the core center of your lives. And people around you are saying, I don't know what the deal with that person is, but they really love Jesus. And guess what? Next thing you know, you're going to be fishing for men. Everywhere you go. 
the, the aroma of Christ will be on you. So how are we going to make this happen? Um, how are we going to make this happen? I left something down here, so I'm going to walk down here and get it. In your bulletin is this. Who's your one mission plan? If you got one, pull it out. How are we going to do it? This is the plan. I said at the beginning uh, today that there's a critical step between doing nothing and between doing something. There's a, the critical mass between doing nothing and doing something, and that, that step is one. We can't do everything. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And the critical step is one. And in view of the Great Commission, I think we can say that we as Christians have the responsibility to always have at least one person that we are intentionally seeking to Christ at all times, to win for Christ at all times, right? I think that's the bare minimum. If we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, the bare minimum of obedience is saying at any one time, there's always going to be at least one person, one person, that I'm intentionally seeking to win to Christ. And how are we going to do that? This, This is the plan. Why is, the, why is this the plan? I told, I told some others earlier. My high school principal said it a thousand times, and that's why I never forget it. He said, failing to plan is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. And what does that mean? Well, it means, to me, it means this. It means there are lots of good things that I know I, that I want to do and that I even know that I should do. But guess what? I don't do them. Why? Because I don't plan to make it happen. If it doesn't get on the calendar, if it doesn't get in the schedule, guess what? It doesn't happen. So if there are things that I know I need to do, that I want to do, that I, want, that I need to do for God, then how can I make it happen? Make a plan and put it on the schedule and make it happen. And so here's how we're going to do it. These are the tools that we have. The first is the mission plan at the top. Under my people, you write down the name of your one. And then under that is your mission partner. I'm asking all of us to find a partner to help us in this. Uh, uh, and you write down their name. And the point of your partner, there's several points, but one point is that it, under that it says we'll hold each other accountable every blank day of the week. Okay, Every Monday, every Wednesday, every Tuesday, Thursday, it doesn't matter. Okay. The point of the partner is to do what? To give you some a little, to give you a little accountability. So that what? So that you'll do what you want to do. And that is reach others for Jesus Christ, right? When you go to the gym and you, why do people pay big bucks for a personal trainer? It's not because they couldn't go out there and, and work out themselves. And they could without paying the money. They need a personal trainer to do what? To <laughs> kick them in the rear and say, hey, let's go. You can do it. Come on. Come on. Let's go. What's your mission partner? Your mission partner is the person right beside you in the gym saying, come on, let's go for Jesus Christ. Some of y'all never work out and that means nothing to y'all. But come on, come on, let's go for Jesus. Come on. Every day of the week, did you, did you do what you planned this week to reach your one? Uh-oh, you didn't? When are you going to do it? You better do it right now. Because I'm, I'm going to stay on you till you do it. How... how uh, I, I ask you, have you been praying regularly for your one? That, that goes to the next tool we'll talk about in a minute. Have you been praying, fasting for your one? On the, back, on the back of your mission plan, at the first little arrow there, there's a spot where you could say, 
you could choose one meal a week. One meal a week out of 21 meals a week, if your health allows it. You could choose one meal a week and fast for this person's salvation. And during the time you would eat that meal, just get on your face and pray that God would save your one. If you were lost, knowing what you know as a Christian, but then hypothetically, if you were lost and know and knew that when you would die, you'd go straight to hell, would you want somebody fasting and praying and making a plan for God to save you? I would. I would. It would mean the world to me to know that someone is abstaining from food and getting on their face and saying, God saved this lost person. They don't know you. Making plans to try to reach them for Jesus Christ. It's the mission plan. So under the plan there, it, it, it lists out the week, the next five weeks. Okay, well, we're going to keep doing this. Remember, we're asking God, in this year, God, in this year, let me read this. One person in this year. year. It's a long time, but it goes by quickly too. Make plans, strategize. In this year, write down what you can do that, that week. At least one thing a week to reach out to your one. Write it down. Write down what day of the week you're going to do it on and what time of the week you're going to do it on. Why? Because if it doesn't get scheduled, it's not going to happen. That's why. Write it out. What you're going to do that week. What day of the week you're going to do it. What time you're going to do it. I'm asking, I'm asking us as a church and myself as well. You can hold your pastor accountable to it. Are you doing your plan? Are you fulfilling your plan? Are you crying out to God for this year for God to reach our one? Let's do it for Christ's sake and for his kingdom and for his glory. The next thing, uh, just quickly, the next thing is the prayer guide. I didn't bring one with me, but there's, a whole, there's stacks and stacks of prayer guides on the table in the vestibule. Y'all saw them as you came in. Prayer guides. There's a, there's, a, there's a prayer guide that kind of explains things where you write the person's name in it. It, it leads you through a prayer and you fill in the person's name and pray for the person. And then there's a blank sheet where you journal personally a prayer. We've did it before, but this is, the, this is a way that we can be intentional about praying for our ones. Take one and pray and journal out every day for your one. And I've told you before, just, it's a way to just keep us intentional about praying because guess what? We can't save people. Only God can save people. That's why we pray. Pray, pray. God save them. Right? And guess what? When God saves them, you can whip out that book and say, look, I've been praying every day for you to be saved. And you hand it to them and guess, and I, believe me, they will treasure that for the rest of their life. That someone cared enough to pray every day for the salvation. Of their soul. And the final thing, the final tool that we have, and with this will be done, is the prayer card. The prayer card, it was in your bulletin, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, you, you can tear it off um, and write the name of your one. If you have the name of your one already in your heart and in your mind, I want you to write it on there. If you, if you want to write just the initials, just the first name, or just some kind of you know, moniker that you understand, but nobody else might know. That's fine. But some way to identify your one, okay, on the card. Here's what I want us to do. If you, are, if you already have it, I want you to go ahead and write that down. And, and, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to come forward in the remaining time, and, um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask the musicians to come up. Uh, we're going to play our final song. But during our time of invitation, here's what I want us to do. I want you to take your card. I want you to take your one. And I want you to come and lay it at the altar. And maybe take some moments and pray. And let this be 
the first in many, many, many intentional prayers of praying for God to save your one. That's what we want to do, and that's what we're going to do as we close this morning. And, of course, the final thing I want to say is maybe you're here this morning, and all this doesn't make any sense to you because deep in your heart you know you haven't truly followed Jesus. Well, today can be the day. You can come, and you can get on your face before Jesus and say, God, forgive me. God, save me. And then God, use me to make an eternal difference in the world. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I'm done praying, I want to invite you to come and lay your cards on the altar. Father, you are great. You are good.